good to see all of you today. So glad to be here to continue to look at Paul's love letters to the Thessalonians and to us to look, read our mail from him. We're going to talk about relationships today. And so I got these, you, you know, nowadays you can't have anything funny to say because everybody's already read it online. But <laughs> these are kind of old, so maybe you forgot. But these are just true letters that children have written to God, so we're talking about relationships. These are honest relationships with God. Denise says, Dear God, if we come back as something, please don't let me be Jennifer Horton because I hate her. (laughs) That's a little too honest to God. (laughs) Dear God, If you let the dinosaur not get extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing. (laughs) Jonathan. God, I would like to live 900 years like that guy in the Bible. Love, Chris. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this year. Peter. (laughs) These little kids have these people they don't like already. Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know, but I'm not just saying that because you are God. (laughs) Charles. Here's the last one. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. (laughs) Would not kill each other so much. Okay, we're talking about God having a relationship with us and with the Thessalonians. This is where Paul is. He's in Thessalonica. It's the city that connected the east with the west. If you got on that Ignatian road and headed east, you'd end up in Asia. And if you got on that road and headed west, you'd end up in Rome itself. And so we can see why the coming of the gospel to Thessalonica was a really important event for Christianity. But what else was important was who took the gospel to Thessalonica. Can you imagine what would have happened if the men and women that were going around sharing the reality of Jesus Christ that was a totally unknown thing at the time in most parts of the world were liars, were evil, were greedy, We're deceitful. We're arrogant. We're flatterers. The gift of the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ needed to be wrapped in the ribbon of the amazing disciples of Jesus Christ. In order for truth to be heard and souls to be saved, those who had preached the love of Christ had to also love deeply themselves. And this is not just a feeling kind of love. This is a deep, committed kind of love. And this was Paul. And this was Silas. And this was Timothy. Now, Paul wasn't even in Thessalonica for a very long time. Some people think six months at the most. Some people think he was only there for one month because he only preached in the synagogue three times. But in that short time... He had endeared himself to these people in Thessalonica because um, of his great committed love for them. 
Now, there uh, were people that didn't like what Paul had to say. They didn't want to hear about this guy named Jesus Christ. And they challenged him. And um, they saw, the Jews saw his threat, I mean, his gospel presentation as a threat to Judaism. And Acts say that they were jealous of him. And then the Jews influenced the Gentiles as well. And so they forced Paul to flee from their city. And we read about that last week. And they did this by raising up a riot. And if you remember reading in Acts, it says that the Thessalonians rounded up the bad characters from the marketplace. Don't you just picture, like, guys in leather jackets outside a bowling alley? I I thought that was the funniest uh, expression. You know, come on, we're going to rough up this guy named Paul. Anyway, they chase him down. He ends up in Berea. They continued, though, once Paul was gone, even all the way into Athens... They continued to try to talk down who Paul was. Because if they could get the Thessalonians to doubt his committed love, then they could get them to doubt the gospel that he had presented to them. And so Paul writes to set the record straight. It's one of the purposes of this letter. Because he knows if the ribbon looks bad... The gift will look bad. In other words, if, the, if those who are preaching the truth look bad, the gospel of Christ will be confusing. And he writes them to remind them, when I was with you, it was about love. I spent time with you in true and sincere and devoted love. Therefore, accept the gift I gave you. The gift of the good news of Jesus Christ. Accept it with confidence because you know I came to you in pure, sincere love. And I think when we read this today, we'll see that his letter about love provides this wonderful blueprint for us today in all our relationships, starting with our own families, going out into the world, the right way to love, uh, the right way to be Christ-like. This is his call for us. Um, I speak a lot about my young life leader, Wayne, but I need to because he's such an important part of my life as a high schooler in Illinois. And um, I've shared that he had absolutely not one gift to do what God had called him to do. He had to rely on God entirely. He was an electrician with five kids. We thought he was really, really old. In fact, they got pregnant while he was our leader, and we thought it was scandalous. <laughs> Their fifth child. And I look at pictures, and he was like 30. You know, so I just had someone send me a picture of him um, where we're doing Young Life. And you, you can see me in the picture being involved. And there's Wayne in a Santa Claus outfit, leaning against the wall, with all of these kids sitting, just listening and embracing everything Wayne had to say about Jesus. Because he loved us with a committed love. He didn't have a sense of rhythm. He tried to lead songs. (laughs) We'd all roll our eyes. He tried to be funny. He wasn't funny. He would speak. He wasn't a good speaker, but the Spirit of God was in his words. 
and he loved us unconditionally. And it was an incredible time where you could see God's power alive and at work in that little town of South Holland, Illinois. When I married Ted and moved here, a young married man came in to the same area to do young life work. His name was Randy. He did not come with committed love. He came with some um, deceit. And he came with some lies. And he came wanting to be in the limelight. And he came pursuing the wrong things. And he didn't spend time discipling. And we can look back. In fact, another, the worst thing that he did was pursued a relationship with a high school girl. And you can take Wayne's years of young life and Randy's years of young life and compare the fruit. When you look at Wayne's years of committed love, you can see he is still in touch with so many great believers. Some of them are in the ministry Some of them are are lay people that are vibrant, walking with Christ, serving with him. And Randy's people had disappeared because they weren't loved with a committed, true, pure, sincere love. In fact, all we can remember is, remember how their marriage fell apart? Remember how that girl's life was almost wrecked? Remember that there's no fruit when we are selfish and don't love as Christ loved. When the ribbon is bad, the gift looks bad, the gospel doesn't go out in power. So what does committed love look like? Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted, insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. On your outline, committed love can be uncomfortable, can be inconvenient, and can be hard. And I thought of a million other adjectives, but I stuck with three. Isn't it fun to love those who love you back? It's just fun. It's a gift from God, and we're supposed to enjoy that. And we can be so glad about that. But if we want to have a committed love, often that means we are loving people that are hard to love in situations that are hard to be excited about. Committed love loves when it's hard. Look at Jesus' words about that in Luke on your verse sheet. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In Paul's case, the hard part was much harder than anything you and I have ever experienced. Being beaten up and flogged and ridiculed and slandered and chased and falsely accused. Yet he persevered with the calling that he had because God gave it to him to reach out to the Macedonians. And he didn't say, I'm trying to love them, but this is too hard. He 
was committed to the task that God gave him. So how can we love those who are hard to love? We can't. We absolutely can't. And that's what brings us to the next truth about committed love. Committed love comes from God alone. I can't love others that are hard to love apart from the work of God in my life. And Paul even says that in this uh, second verse. It was the help of our God that we dared to tell you the gospel. And turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 12. He says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. It's God's work. So we have a choice. When God puts people in our life and he calls us and we know we're supposed to be a part of their life, we can choose to just say, too hard, and walk away, or we can choose to say, help me, God. Help me. You've got to put that love within me. You've got to love them through me. We have to confess our sin and confess our need. I hope a lot of you are going to come to the Ladies' Day Away. Um, We can sign up today if you haven't done that yet. Jackie Kendall's going to be speaking. She came from um, a home where she was sexually abused. I think all seven of her siblings were. And her story of having to learn to forgive her father is an amazing story. But she walks in a committed love to those who hurt her because she asked God and confessed, I cannot do it apart from you. I I thought about Karen uh, Miles when I was working on this story because I've always loved um, the picture she painted for me. I asked her permission to share this. She came from a family with a mom and a dad who didn't know the Lord, and dad was an alcoholic, and her mom was pretty demanding and controlling and not very nurturing. They came to Texas and retired here, and her dad um, died, and Karen was a part of ministering to him. But then they had her mom at Trinity Terrace, and Karen would visit her, and her mom would still be controlling and have high expectations for her. It wasn't fun for Karen to go and spend time with her mom. And she tells the story of the day that through Bible study and through others, God spoke to her and said, you've got to forgive her. And you've got to love her with a committed love. And how she repented and said to God, she told me these were her very words, give me the eyes of Christ when I'm with my mom. I want to love my mom like Christ would love. And she said that she was in her car at the corner of Forest Park and going again every day to Trinity Terrace and and said to God, if I need to go every day for 25 years to visit my mom and love her unconditionally, I will do that. A neat part of the story was that besides the fact that God really began to do that in Karen's life, she began to love her mom with a committed love from God. And one day an evangelist was traveling, came through, and her mom listened to his message, and Karen said she got down on her knees and prayed, and her mom, she got to hear her mom express words of putting her faith in Jesus Christ. She wouldn't have got to be a part of that 
if she had given up, if she had said, you're on your own, you're too hard. She told God, I need you to do it. I thought about a picture of that would be to just keep our hands open and say to God, you fill it. It's empty. I don't like this person. I don't want to forgive this person. God loves that prayer. He can do it. He wants to put that love in our hearts and give us the strength to persevere and go forward. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3.5 on your verse sheet. May the Lord... Direct your heart into God's love and Christ's perseverance. I also thought of another friend who went through a very deep trial in her marriage, and she shares about this to the point where she didn't have any feelings for her husband. She had pursued divorce, and God got a hold of her heart and said, you know, I need you to obey me. I need you to trust me. I need you to rely on me. And I love the image that her story is because... She let him come home. She was doing this. And she said, I had absolutely no feelings for him. But I thought, I can obey God. I can do this. And then one day, she found herself at the picture window in her living room, watching for him to come home from work. And she realized God had restored her love because she had asked him to. And uh, it's just an exciting story of what God can do. Committed love is supernatural. The world would like to tell us you have the right to hate. You have the right not to forgive. You have the right for revenge. But as God's children, he says you can't be like the world. You have to be different. He calls us to persevere in committed love. Look what Second John says. This is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. And as you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. On your outline, committed love looks like God's love for us. We were pursued by God when we didn't deserve it. No one knew that better than Paul. He was doing all he could to stop God's work. And on the road to Damascus, God pursued him and blinded him and called him for this specific purpose. And so Paul remembers that. And he pursues the Thessalonians, even though they hadn't done anything to deserve that. He pursues and stayed with with them and says it was not a failure, even though it was hard, because the gospel was preached. The gospel was heard, and Paul got to demonstrate what the gospel looks like by the way that he loved the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians were falling more and more in love with Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. They report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and you're waiting for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I think when we love others sacrificially, we always have God's blessing on it because it looks like God's love for us. It looks like the sacrificial love of Jesus. Look at Romans 5. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. It was hard. Paul was glad he did it. He persevered. Love can be hard and inconvenient and uncomfortable. And now Paul says, okay, I want to talk to you about these false accusations. So let's look at those in chapter, verse 3. For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Okay, they make three accusations right there. And I want to say this. If we wanted to build a foundation for committed love, we would have five bricks in front of us. And each of those bricks would be essential to building a foundation to love others as Christ loved. And the first brick on your outline would be the word truth. That brick would have the word truth written on it. There is nothing loving about teaching someone an untruth. And so Paul couldn't accept this accusation that they make in verse 3. They are saying that what he taught was wrong. It was an error. And they want to connect Paul to false teachers. You know, back in the early church, the minute God was doing a work, Satan would put in these false teachers to follow and invade and infiltrate the early church and cause division. And so these jealous Jews were saying, well, well, that's who Paul is. I mean, what he taught wasn't even true. Paul would have no part of being aligned with false teaching. And here's the truth. Paul's teaching could be perfectly aligned with other people's teaching, like Peter and John and James and every other apostle, and their teachings could all be lined up with the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. What an amazing thing. That was the power of the gospel. It couldn't have any error in it. Um, I told you, I guess a few months ago, about my dad, who just turned 79 and just decided last spring to read the Bible for the first time, which has been such a joy uh, in my life. He, he first could only say book. He wouldn't even say the word Bible. I'm reading that book. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's been so great. And I got to go there in October... And it was so fun, and we were talking, and and he had just finished reading uh, most of the New Testament. And so I try to ask him things he's learning and not nag him or bug him too much. And my dad said this interesting thing. He said, well, everyone says the same thing. (laughs) I thought, exactly. Isn't that exciting, Dad? How could 12 men who are scattered all over the place say the exact same thing about the person of Jesus, about salvation, about eternal life, about sanctification, about justification, unless they knew the truth? And it was so fun to see him think about that. And it's so great for you and I, because that's why we can believe it. It's true. John said in his letters he had no greater joy than to hear that his children were walking in truth. That was true of Paul as well. And fads and phases and religions are going to come and go. Think of two years ago what Oprah was pushing in book-wise. Where is that now? It'll be a new one someday. Those are going to come and go. But the gospel that Jesus came and lived 
and died and resurrected for you and I and for our sins, that will live forever because it's true. And so what they're saying about Paul is absolutely wrong. Next brick, pure motives. They say, hey, you've got impure motives. The word impure there has to do with moral impurity and uncleanliness. And so what they're saying is that Paul was pushing people and encouraging sexual immorality in the church, which is sort of funny for us to think about. But here's why they would do that. Christians called the Lord's Supper a love feast. Christians would greet each other with a holy kiss, or they would call it a kiss of peace. And so unbelievers let their imaginations go wild. And they would just distort what this meant. And they began to say that the Christians were promiscuous and encouraged sexual immorality among each other. And that's what they mean by saying he had impure motives here. He denies this charge because Paul's motives were exactly opposite of that. In fact, look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Here's Paul's motives urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. When we love others with intention and committed love, we have the privilege of taking them from a lifestyle that may involve uh, sin and immorality and introducing them to the possibility of having those horrible chains removed. That was Paul's motive. Nothing impure about him. I was uh, looking at the I Am Second website once. How many of you have looked at the I Am Second? Yeah, it's really a great ministry. Uh, Lots of testimonies from different people. And we actually have some people at Christ Chapel that came because of the ministry of I Am Second. But I like Stephen Baldwin's testimony on there because it's about his maid. They had a maid named Augusta. And um, he said this was about 16 years ago now. And she was cleaning their house. Well, while she cleaned their house, she would sing songs to God. And she'd sing songs about Jesus all the time. And finally, Stephen Baldwin's wife came up to him and said, You know, I've noticed you're always singing about Jesus. Uh, Do you have any other songs in your repertoire? (laughs) And the maid burst out laughing. And she looked at Stephen Baldwin's wife and said, You think I'm here to clean your house? I'm here to lead you to the Lord. And she said, And then you're going to have a ministry with your husband. Well, the wife was baffled and said, ran into Stephen and said, You won't believe what Augusta just said to me. And tells him the story. And when Stephen Baldwin tells it, now he laughs. Because that's how they came to the Lord. That is why Augusta was there. And she loved them with a committed love and prayed for them. And they came to know the Lord. And guess what? They didn't go into a worse lifestyle like the Thessalonians are saying Paul was doing. They went into a better lifestyle, living lives worthy of the God who called them into his work and into his kingdom. Next brick, sincerity. The accusers are saying here, they're looking in Paul's heart, and they're saying, it's deceitful. You are purposefully deluding others. And the word here 
for uh, tricking, is trick in that verse, is deceit. And they use that word for a fishing lure, to catch fish. So what the Thessalonians are saying, you've got this fishing lure, Paul, that you're just casting out there. You're just waiting to see who's stupid enough to bite on it. Because you're deceitful. Paul knew everything he said was sincere because without that brick of sincerity, love cannot be built. And so Paul says, let me tell you why I'm not deceitful. I was called to this by God himself. And God cannot be deceitful. Look at verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So uh, the next brick is divine leading. They were led by Thessalonica by God himself. I think Deb talked about it last week. They were planning to go one direction. It says that the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. And then while Paul was sleeping, a man in a vision came to Paul and said, Come, come to Macedonia, help us. And Luke records they got up the next day. They immediately set off. They knew this is a mission that God has for us. It was a divine leading. Who dare to falsely accuse a divine mission of God? Who dare to falsely accuse the missionaries sent from God? Paul says we are approved. And that word approved means shown true by testing. Proven genuine by testing. Paul had been doing this for years. That was God's test. And the fact that God was blessing his ministry shows Paul had passed the test. He was approved by God. He was a witness to their integrity and their passion for the gospel. And so he entrusted them with this incredible mission of giving this gift of the gospel. But in order to do this, they had to pick up the last brick, which is selflessness. Those verses I just read, 4 through 6, we see a lot more accusations. They're saying, well, Paul's a man-pleaser. He uses flattery for his benefit. He needs to be adored by men. Trying again to put Paul in the category of false teachers. There were those false teachers. And guess what? If you were a good false teacher, in the sense that you were good at being false, you could have a good life because you didn't have to work and you didn't have to, have to figure out how to eat. Somebody would give you food and a place to stay. And when they got tired of you and kicked you out, you just walked to the next church and do the same thing. I found out that they actually wrote a book to protect churches from these kind of people in 100 A.D. And so here's what it says. Let every prophet that comes to you be received as from the Lord, and he shall stay one day, and if need be, the next also. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. (laughs) And when the prophet goes forth, let him take nothing but maybe some bread till he reaches his lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. No prophet that orders a table in the spirit shall eat of it, or he is a false prophet. 
If he that comes is a passerby, nourish him as far as you can, but he shall not abide with you longer than two or three days unless there be necessity. But if he be minded to settle among you and be a craftsman, let him work and eat. But if he has no trade, according to your understanding, provide that he shall not live idle among you, being a Christian. But if he will not do this work, he is a Christmonger. Which, have you ever heard that word? Be aware of such men. This did not describe Paul in any way. So he denies that accusation. Here's the truth about Paul. He was a man lost in his message. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, Our gospel came to you, not simply with words. Okay, he doesn't say we came to you. What was he most excited about coming to them? The gospel came to them. He doesn't even talk about himself. He's opening his letter by saying, Remember when our gospel came to you? And guess who Paul's gospel is? Take your eyes over to... Verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, With the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel. Paul's gospel is God's gospel. Paul was not about Paul. Paul was about God. He wanted men not to praise him, but to praise the Lord Jesus Christ. His heart was selfless. His motive was love. Look at 1 John. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love each other. And that is exactly what was in the heart of Paul. So how does committed love behave? On your outline, those that love deeply love others with intention. Let's look at verse 6. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Okay, here's the picture. Thessalonica, busy place. Beautiful harbor. Lots of people. Lots of activities. Lots of noise. Lots of crowds. And if we could just get the um, satellite now like we can do and type it up on our computer, we would see Paul right in the middle of it. 
just running around, meeting people, inviting people into fellowship, gathering people together, talking, discussing. We'd see him in the synagogue preaching, investing his life with these Thessalonians that never heard anything like this in their life about Jesus Christ. We would see him totally involved in their lives, having pizza parties at Jason's house, you know, getting friends over, whatever it took, having meals with people, praying, worshiping God together. On your outline, Paul's first intention. Oh, it's not on your outline, but you can write it down. Under the intention is he wants to love them like a parent loves. That's his first intention. As intimate as a mother and a father. It says here, just like a mother, and the true translation is a nursing mother. Just like a nursing mother cares and feeds her children, Paul sees his responsibility to be the spiritual parent who is feeding these new believers the word of God. Moses also said that about himself when he talked about Israel, that he was like a nursing mother to them. He's like a father in that he loves and directs them and disciplines them in a loving way. Paul's next intention is to love them like God loves them. I'm sorry, to love them like God loves. Verse 8, he says this. We loved you so much that we shared not only the gospel, but our lives as well. I just love that. Paul didn't think, you know, I'm going to pontificate some information, and then I'm going to run out the door. I'm going to find a cozy little beach house and leave these people. He says, I was pleased to share the gospel and then my life with you. And that life is actually translated our own souls. And it's in the imperfect tense, and that's what this means. We gave our lives to you in the past, and our plan is to continue to keep on giving them to you. We want to be who you are, be with you. And the word love here, when he says, uh, we loved you so much, it's a form of the word agape. And you all know what that means? That's that love that is God's love. It's a love that will go all the way to giving up somebody's life if they have to for another individual. That's the word Paul uses when he says, we loved you so much. We imparted our very lives to you. His third intention was to love them like a Christ follower should love. We read these passages about Paul. Now, they didn't want to be one of these false teachers who came and just sort of sucked everybody dry and went on their way. So Paul and Silas and Timothy worked. And when you see the word toil and hardship, that means from early in the morning till late at night. So in between working and probably what they were doing was building tents, making tents in Thessalonica, because that's what Paul could do. He would be doing that. I envision people coming down saying, you know, hey, stop for a minute and have a sandwich. Tell me what you were telling me about Jesus. And Paul would do it. 
And Paul was there for them. And he wasn't too tired at the end of the day to go to Jason's and gather people together and continue to teach them about the love of Christ. He did not want to burden these people. He didn't want to burden them financially. And so he chose to serve and didn't expect to be served. That's what Paul did. This is an unselfish lifestyle, and that's demonstrating the love of Jesus. Look at Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look at verse 9. I thought this was neat. Circle this word. Brothers, he says, surely you remember, brothers. Paul is connecting himself to these new believers at Thessalonia, a group that had never been united before. Old people, young people, Jewish people, Gentile people, wealthy people, poor people, slaves with masters, people that had never been connected until Jesus Christ. And when they became a church and they worshiped Jesus all at once, they were all one person. And Paul is saying, and I'm with you. I'm one of you. Together we are united in Christ. Then I thought those that love others deeply love God deeply. This is how we behave in committed love. Verse 10 is Paul reminding them of his righteous behavior. Holy, righteous, and blameless. How in the world can you make up that kind of behavior? We can't do it if we don't have a relationship with God. In order to give committed love, we first have to have a committed love to God. And then he gives us, through his righteousness, this kind of holy and blameless behavior among each other. They come from a heart that is in love with God. Look at Romans 12. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He also says in verse 10, you are our witnesses of how righteous we were. In the Old Testament, it took two or more witnesses to verify a truth. Paul says here, I have two witnesses. I have you, the church, and I have God as my witness. So you know it's a true thing. We were righteous and holy and blameless before you. So what is committed love hope? Look back at verse 12. On your outline, committed love desires others' spiritual best. Paul says we're encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. We don't love others so we can get loved back. Jesus said, well, even the pagans do that. That's not our goal. We're supposed to look higher. We're supposed to go deeper. We're supposed to care about their love for God. We have spiritual hopes for them. We want to experience that with them. I was thinking back about uh, when I married Ted, and I can remember we were each going to engrave something in each other's wedding ring. And I thought long and hard about it. 
And uh, I can remember standing at this counter in this little place. We had this glass counter, old wooden floor, and giving Ted's ring to this woman. And this is the verse I had chosen. Now, she wasn't going to write the verse in there. Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brother, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, always stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And truthfully, that was where my heart was, through the grace of God. I thought to myself, what do I want Ted to know his whole life? I want him to know. I want his faith in God to stay firm. That's the most important thing to me. Uh, I can remember handing the ring to her, and I only put in the first part of it, my brother, whom I love and long for. And the lady said, did you say this is for your husband? (laughs) And I said, yes. And I remember thinking, he's my brother in Christ. That takes precedence of the fact that he's going to be my husband. I care about spiritually who he is going to be. Now, sad to say, he was in the kitchen last night, and I said, Ted... What's the verse inside your wedding ring? <laughs> and he said, uh, Proverbs. I said, no, guess again. And he said, Song of Solomon. And I said, no. And, and he was over there trying to get his ring off. And he pulled it off and he read it. And then I read the verse again for him. And he said, I'll try my best. Committed love on your outline is also focused on the glory of God. None of this was about Paul. It was all about God. Paul's heart beat for God to be glorified, not only in the life of the Thessalonians, but in the life of the Galatians, the Philippians, whoever else God brought along their way, that they would come to glorify God. In fact, look at Philippians 1. Paul's prayer about them. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of Paul? No. He cared about the glory of God. And let me say this. There is power behind committed love because it's God's power. And because it's God's power, God will receive the glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we uh, know that we are in this room because there were your followers who spoke truth in sincerity and had a divine leading and who were humble servants and selfless. And may that be us for the next generation. So the gospel is a beautiful gift that we can hold out and others can grasp in great confidence because we represent you. We love you, Lord, and thank you. And pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.